Also, Kramer had a dog. What happened to Kramer's dog? That's what I want to know. Kramer's. What happened to. What happened to. Dog. What happened to dog? Kramer's. Kramer's dog. What. 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 What happened to Kramer's dog? That's what I want to know. You guys like Chopped and Screwed remixes? Welcome to I'd Buy That for a Dollar, a podcast about inexpensive, common, and underappreciated records that are waiting to be rediscovered. I'm your host, Sean Hartman, former mailroom manager for Sagman, Bennett, Robbins, Oppenheimer, and Taft. I am Jeremy Ruggles, and I am regularly disappointed when I pick up my tuner and the battery is out. (laughs) Happens all the time. Is that because you've never changed the battery, or... (laughs) yeah okay so there's a solution to this problem that you refuse to uh take part in the disappointment just prevents me from doing what i need to do i can understand that i can understand that is there any other co-host in the building indeed i'm peter cook literature consultant for purgatory's waiting room (laughs) well it's just glad to just glad to have you boys with us Wait, what's what's give me an example of one thing in Purgatory's waiting room that you've recommended? Infinite Jest. <laughs> what else? That was exactly the book in my mind. <laughs> <laughs> Literally no other book. That's it. Infinite piles of infinite jest. Yep. Original copies. Well, before we uh before we all end up in Purgatory or elsewhere, do you guys want to talk about a record? Yes. Yes. Take me far away from this white bread country, Sean. Would you say that you might need a, a little bit of an escape? I definitely need an escape. Could you use a, a mood shift? I could use a mood shift. Well, then, boy, have I got a record for you. How about we talk about Martin Denny's eighth record from 1959, Quiet Village? Okay. All right. So I picked this record, not because it's Martin Denny's best record, because they're all equally good, but because this is probably the easiest Martin Denny record to find and one of the easiest Exotica records to find. And we're going to start with side A, track one, Stranger in Paradise. Thank you. 
sounded like some far out deconstructed jazz mishmash with instruments unidentifiable. I'd say that's exactly what that was. It's got this dreamy feel to it, full of colorful tones, kind of gives you this feeling of deep relaxation with a little bit of childlike wonder is the way I think about it. Sean, the instrument that you commented on while we were listening that you said you couldn't quite place, it sounded like a like bells and a piano. That's a Celesta, it's oh. also called a bell piano. Okay, <laughs> makes sense. That's my f- favorite part of the song, though, is when the uh, Celesta comes in. It's just like the perfect, like weird little, like dreamy move. Just kind of seems like it just floats into the song. Also, did you guys pick up on the uh, kind of distant foghorn uh, boat sound at the beginning of the track? <laughs> oh yeah, I knew when that was the first thing I heard that I would be on board for this ride. <laughs> Set and sail, boys. Yeah, I mean, it, that's the first sound on the record, a very, what I would guess, intentional move of giving you the illusion of departing for the islands on your big cruise ship or whatever you're taking. So I have a, a question for you guys before we dive into this. So we talked a little bit about the genre term exotica a few episodes back with Ema Sumac. What does exotica mean to you and how would you define it? Jeremy, go first. I mean, my understanding is that it comes from a post-World War II movement of people trying to experience the rest of the world. I'm sure they're hearing stories from soldiers who've been all over the place, and it seems like there is a mood of wanting to see the world, and then they were sold this totally fabricated version of what the rest of the world is like that is represented by Exotica. But then listening to this album, it just kind of felt like, like I said, like deconstructed jazz, and they're using instruments not common to it, and textures but melodically and harmonically, it's pretty much jazz, and they just add in interesting sounds and textures to paint it with different colors, I guess. Yeah, definitely. Peter, do you got any hot takes? Well, some of the things that I would have said were paraphrased by Jeremy, but I'll add to that. I think of it as something parallel to space age music. I guess I see it as a very distinct era of music consumption and a very different record-buying public than what the world was like by the time I was born in 1980. That was (laughs) the world that's represented on these sort of like novelty records of the late 40s through the 50s into the early 60s. Like there's very little trace of that. Uh, by the time <laughs> uh, I become conscious of the world around me. Right. Yeah. And it's obviously, as we discussed in the Ema Sumac episode, there's a lot of things that are inherently problematic about the genre, but, and I, I go in with that mentality, but then I usually end up really enjoying the records regardless of that. Yeah, absolutely. The The study of exotica and the cultures 
that embraced it and everything going on around it and you know what was going on in america at the time it all connects i mean the more research i did about martin denny and you know the culture around it we could do a whole series of episodes about this whole thing you know books have been written there's a whole lot to dig in on but uh, pretty much everything both you guys said is is right exotica also as a genre term as with most genre terms was kind of retroactively put on there it, nowadays martin denny is known famously as the father of exotica the entire genre is actually named after his first record just simply called exotica uh, at the time and throughout history, there's been a handful of other genre terms that have been used for some of the same music. Like you said, space age music. People have also called it lounge music, easy listening, mood music, Muzak, etc. And yeah, there's a, there's a lot that goes into it. So over the rest of this episode, we'll hopefully paint a picture a little bit for people about what was going on with this. So there's a few reasons why I believe Martin Denny is known as the father of Exotica. It's it's not because he did it first. I believe that, one, he was an absolute musical genius. Two, his music was more marketable than a lot of his predecessors, like Ima Sumac or Eden Abes. And three, he was a remarkably self-aware musician with a kind of profound understanding of what the American record buyer wanted at the time. He has stated before that he considers his music to be a sort of fantasy or window dressing, as he called it, because, you know, as we talked about before, the music uh, rewards a deeper listen but doesn't require it. And his intention the whole time was purely to make music as a background, you know, as a mood music. <laughs> this wasn't intended to be like, you know, blasted and danced to and given the same level of attention that a lot of other stuff was. Do, do you remember that scene in Back to the Future Part 2 where they're at the future Marty McFly's home and there's like a screen on the wall that's meant to look like a, a, a different climate or, or geographical setting? to sort of transport the mood of the room to something other than your location. Do you have any recollection of that? I can't remember what they, <laughs> I don't. I can't remember what they <laughs> it's call been it. a while since I've seen that one. <laughs> I kind of think of these records as, as being something along those lines, something that people would put on in their homes as a way of transporting themselves elsewhere. Mm-hmm. So with Martin Denny saying that his music was a fantasy, what mm -hmm. he meant by that was there was never any intention of creating an authentic sound or even stealing songs from other cultures as many other white musicians have done throughout history. But instead it was a sort of musical kaleidoscope intended to sound the way that the average American thinks that some of these exotic locations might sound. Mm -hmm. So in creating that he's using jazz as his primary base for creating this music and then coloring it with subtle influences from music from Africa and Pacific Island nations and East Asian nations. And there's a, there's a lot going on that made Martin Denny be not only in the right place at the right time to become the father of Exotica, but he was also perfectly equipped for the title. I'll give a, a brief history of, of how he ended up here. He was born April 10th, 1911. And he didn't actually achieve 
real success until the age of 46. So he had a long time to really prepare and kind of in some ways accidentally position himself for this. As a teenager, he first started working with some different uh, big band and jazz groups and from an early age became very interested in Latin rhythms and Latin jazz fusion. And he also began collecting obscure instruments from all around the world, especially in East Asian and Pacific Island nations uh, before there was like a trend of people collecting that stuff. He was drafted into World War II, raised in LA, went to World War II, returned to LA, and then spent a few years studying music heavily. He studied at the uh, at CalArts and then transferred to USC. Spent a long time really honing his craft, his arranging skills, his piano skills, everything. And then in 1954, he was hired for a short residency by a guy known as Don the Beachcomber, who we'll touch on later. And this was in Hawaii at one of uh, Don's restaurants from the chain that he had been running. And Martin was so struck by the culture there and had such a good time that he returned the following year in 1955 to start his own Hawaii-based combo featuring natives of the island and was then signed to Liberty Records in 1966 and dropped his debut album in 1957. <laughs> so and this is this is just a couple years later and it's his eighth album exactly cranking them out <laughs> yep <laughs> did you guys know hawaii wasn't even a state yet when he was there it was 59 that they became a state right mm -hmm. yeah the same year this record came out yep exactly so i think that's one of the reasons why this record is pretty easy to find well, before we get into more information, you guys want to hear another track? Yeah. Indubitably. All right. So the next one I'm going to play is called Sake Rock, side A, track four. And this is a good example of some of the more uh, East Asian influences that he put into his music.
one of the kind of cheesier numbers on the record, I would say. Not necessarily yeah, my that one favorite was track. One of my least favorites. Yeah. The more I thought about that track, though, the more I got interested in it, and that's why I put it on there. One of the features of Exotica music was that it was in many ways a direct reaction to rock and roll, which was just starting to take over at this point. Elvis was starting to score some hits. This was like these artists were appearing on TV and just positively terrifying the older generations. So the people that were buying Exotica records in a lot of ways needed something that was safer in some ways than the rock and roll that was happening. But with this, you know, he's doing a subtle nod. He's got like a kind of like rock and roll go-go beat behind it, but it's still very tame. It's the kind of thing where someone who hates rock and roll can listen to that and be like, well, I like this. So I kind of like some rock stuff. (laughs) This is where I show my rock cred. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Check this out, kids. Songs like that, and most of Martin Denny's music, was actually, at the time, considered quite square by most young people, and often maligned by critics. However, as Jeremy mentioned, to the you know older generation that had fought through World War II, and was now trying to figure out how life is supposed to go after that, back in the States, this was exactly the kind of music that they wanted, and exactly the kind of escapism that they needed. To the point where throughout the late 50s and the mid 60s, Martin Denny was so successful and so prolific that it wasn't uncommon for him to have three or four records at a time on the Billboard charts simultaneously. Damn. Yeah. I saw he was putting out like three to five a year for like a decade. Just cranking them out. And they're all so good musically, you know, questionable in many other ways. But uh, so a big reason why. Martin Denny enjoyed such meteoric success and consequently just as steep a decline a few years later was because of his close ties to something known as American tiki culture, Hmm. which I know we touched on in the Ema Sumac episode and something that I've been studying a lot more in the past weeks and have been getting kind of fascinated by it. And hopefully I won't go too long in trying to uh, <laughs> succinctly describe it to people. Cause there's a lot going on there. Yeah. I saw a license plate the other day that had some Tiki culture reference on it. And I felt, inc- I didn't whip out my phone and take a picture of it, but I, I it would have been sent to you if I had. <laughs> right on. All right. So Tiki culture was a movement or fad that began in post prohibition 1930s i believe prohibition ended in 1933 and it took off thanks to america's growing fascination with pacific island nations especially after world war ii where you know many of the veterans were stationed in the south pacific and experienced a lot of this culture firsthand and had very fond memories of it in some ways after returning to the States. The name Tiki culture was primarily inspired by Thor Heyerdahl's 1947 expedition to Polynesia on his handmade raft, the Contiki, which was famously portrayed by Clive Owen in season 10, episode five of Curb Your Enthusiasm. (laughs) And it kind of culminated in big budget Hollywood films like South Pacific and successful restaurant chains like Don's Beachcomber that we mentioned, uh, the commodifying and eventual statehood of Hawaii and eventually the trend of 
redesigning backyard patios for luau styled parties the playboy mansion is actually a famous example of a backyard designed in this fashion because at the time that was the coolest party you could possibly throw it was like a vaguely ethnic vaguely island themed party with a lot of exploitative features and actually you know no real appreciation of culture or respect but it made them feel cultured <laughs> but it made them feel feel kind of exotic you know they're doing something different the the other element going into this is at this point in the late 50s the young boomers are starting to come of age and rebel and make all this dangerous music and the silent generation is starting to creep up on their collective midlife crisis the whole movement kind of centered around as we said, like a purely aesthetical approach, but also escapism and socially acceptable excess. All these folks who were supposedly old enough to know better were getting absolutely trashed on sugary cocktails served in hollowed out pineapples and then planning their vacations to Hawaii where they could dance and stare at scantily, scantily clad brown people. It was like the original what happens in Vegas kind of scenario. It was this really gross culture of these very sexually repressed people traveling to the islands and just completely disrespecting culture and then bringing it back to the States, making weird whitewashed versions of island culture and then selling it themselves and just profiting off of this exploited area and exploited people. And so then we have Martin Denny, who's seems to be coming from a place of genuine love for music and for experimentation within music, but his art is kind of forever entangled with this weird movement that was deeply problematic, exploitative, and racist to its core, basically. And, you know, that was evidenced by a lot of, you know, intentional brown face on album art, a lot of white people painted up to look ambiguously ethnic, as they would call it at the time. Yeah, the, uh, the model on the cover of this, Sandy... Warner, as I understand it, she was on a lot of his album covers and would be, as you said, made up differently depending on the mood they were trying to convey or the culture. Yeah, exactly. A lot of people didn't realize at the time that it was the same model every time because they're always framing it to look like maybe she's from wherever this nation is supposed to be that's on the album cover but again people didn't actually care they just they wanted the aesthetic and they wanted the mood and they didn't want to learn about whatever culture was actually informing it and then again this was more with other artists than martin denny uh, there was a lot of portrayal as native populations as some kind of subhuman savage and taking parts of their culture such as these old gods and religions and folklore and then just turning it into knickknacks that you could buy and decorate your patio with. Yuck. Yeah. <laughs> Though Martin Denny himself lived in Hawaii and was surrounded like by, I don't know. Uh, I'm losing my thread there. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's true. You know, there's, there's not a ton of deep information about, how intentional Martin Denny was with this or, you know, how exploitative his intentions were or anything. I do know that most of his band were, as I mentioned, natives of Hawaii and he specifically moved there and then lived in Hawaii until he died and seemed to really appreciate the culture. 
and was just genuinely very interested in, you know, obscure instruments from all over the world and things like that and very passionate about music. And he also seemed to be really good at launching the careers of people that were in his bands. Arthur Lyman is another very famous exotica musician who was on Martin Denny's first record. And also Julius Wechter, who went on to form the Baja Marimba band, was an early member of the Martin Denny group. Composer of the song Spanish Flea. Exactly. That that mega hit from days gone by. <laughs> Homer Simpson's favorite song. <laughs> <laughs> So Martin has a really interesting legacy. As I said, at the time he was maligned by critics, very successful with album sales, and then kind of disappeared in the 60s, although he continued to work with modest success throughout the 80s. He still played in a lot of clubs and had a lot of residencies at hotels in Hawaii, and some people really still loved him. But then in the 90s, he started getting this a weird resurgence in respect, especially from a lot of underground heroes, such as the band Yellow Magic Orchestra <laughs> and Psychic TV. Yeah. Were just two of the groups that were very, very big fans of Martin Denny's music and were very inspired by him. And there was also uh, an increase in interest due to the vintage fashions coming into style starting in the 90s. People started digging in thrift stores and finding these weird, goofy old records and collecting Exotica and Space Age records became a, a hobby of many hardcore record collectors. Yeah. When we started this podcast and one of our first albums was an Exotica album, I realized that, man, I just, this is something that I'm, you know, vaguely aware of it existing. You know, I knew Martin Denny's name, but I, I've never really had, had dove in myself. And I know that's a big cornerstone of record collecting for the, mm -hmm. especially the last 20 30 years i feel like there's been a renaissance of it of the records becoming influential in their own way it made sense when i saw that yellow magic orchestra were inspired by this music yeah specifically the song firecracker which is on this album which is another one of his kind of uh, vaguely east asian influenced songs uh, supposedly that song was the primary inspiration for Yellow Magic Orchestra forming as a group. Wow. You guys want to hear another song? I'm ready. Yes. All right. This next one is one of my actual favorites on the album. This is Side B, track one, Martinique.
something we have not yet addressed are the bird calls happening throughout this record. Yes, an infamous uh, element of Martin Denny's music. How did that come to be, Sean? So, as I said, he was starting his career doing these residencies at these Hawaii resorts. And his band would often be set up near the pool or in the lounge area. And the whole point was they just wanted this exotic mood music for people to just relax and drink their super sugary cocktails to. And there was one night while they were playing and they noticed that one song in particular that they did, the frogs around the resort started making noise much louder along to the song. And then they stopped when the song was done. And the next song they played, the band started just kind of randomly mimicking bird calls and kind of communicating with nature with the music almost and (laughs) exactly (laughs) and they just thought it was like a goofy thing they did you know they're playing every night no one really cares everyone's drunk when they're listening to them they're just having fun and then they go to set up the next day and people approach them immediately are like hey can you play the the song with the frog and the bird sounds again in order to recreate it martin denny used a notched cylinder of wood that kind of mimicked the sounds of frogs. And then he had the percussionist August or Augie colon mimic bird sounds. He was a native of Hawaii from what I understand. So he was very familiar with the, the bird sounds that were happening was very talented at recreating them. And it just became a fixture of his music. Just about every Martin Denny record you're going to find is going to have some bird calls on it somewhere. And then another element of just my theory of how, Martin Denny was a very self-aware musician. The track on here, My Little Grass Shack, cha-cha-cha, if you listen to it, it's duck call sounds that they're using, and the like instrumentation behind it is just a little too up-tempo and cheesy, even for him. It just feels like he knows how inherently goofy and weird his music is, and he could even just like subtly make fun of it on his own hit records at the time. You did describe him as self-aware at the top, didn't you? I did. Which helps. Uh, That probably is one of the reasons that his legacy is somewhat preserved despite uh, this problematic culture that his music is associated with. Yeah. And, you know, I also have been thinking a lot about why a lot of these uh, much more experimental musicians were really influenced by him, especially a lot of the 90s bands that were coming around who are obviously not making music for people to just feel relaxed and they're not trying to give that dreamy escapist vibe for the most part. A lot of this, you know, especially psychic TV is challenging music, but in some ways, if you think about how Martin Denny was taking jazz and moving it in a direction that was much more based on tone and texture than melody and other normal fixtures of pop music at the time, And I feel like that element specifically is what translated into a lot of other 90s music, especially the noise and experimental world. You had people reapproaching how songs are written and deconstructing various genres. And like Jeremy said, Martin Denny's music in a lot of ways is very deconstructionist. Mm -hmm. Yeah, really, I have to think in the 1950s, the textures that result from their approach here are kind of revolutionary. Absolutely. 
And, you know, the whole thing of him actually collecting these real instruments did set his music apart from a lot of other people who were doing this even before him. You know, uh, Les Baxter was making Exotica records with exploitative album covers for, I think, six or seven years before Martin Denny was putting out music. But a lot of his stuff was generally working in a more traditional instrument framework. You know, he was just taking his big bands and kind of trying to write this slightly exotic sounding music, whereas Martin Denny's music came across as more authentically exotic, even though it was just as much a fantasy as anything else. Are you familiar with the German kraut rock band Cannes ethnological forgery series where they would Mm-mm. self-consciously imitate various world music genres some of that stuff appeared on the compilation Unlimited Edition. I don't know if you've heard that one. I have not. They they very well could have been influenced by stuff like this. That makes sense. That definitely makes sense. From what I understand, a lot of those pioneering uh, European artists from that point were really spending a lot of time digging into obscure roots of music that were informing the new directions that they were going. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it makes sense. So I have a theory about why this is the easiest Martin Denny record to find. Because there's some confusion. The version of Quiet Village that's on this record is not the hit single version of it. His number one single version of Quiet Village was actually on his first album, Exotica, which I believe sold pretty well, but it's not quite as easy to find as this record. And I think the reason might be is that They called this album Quiet Village simply to capitalize off of the success of that song because people probably knew that song title and were looking for Martin Denny, Quiet Village and didn't realize that the song's actually on an album called Exotica. So I feel like the people who weren't really down with the culture, you know, they weren't the true tiki culture heads, (laughs) (laughs) the the late to the game kind of people... (laughs) They were the ones going into the record store and being like, I need Martin Denny Quiet Village. And they're like, oh, this record here with Quiet Village on it, this must be the one that I want. And then they would just buy this. So this record is more likely to be in the collection of people who didn't actually have a lot of good Exotica records and were just trying to cash in on the trend last minute. Yeah. Whereas the true heads were banging like Ema Sumac records and Exotica one through three and like that kind of stuff. So if you have this record in your collection, you're a poser. Well, that and the collections that had Martin Denny's Quiet Village in it were more likely to just get completely tossed into the thrift store instead of being uh, given the time of day at your local record store kind of thing. Mm-hmm. That's just a theory, but I'm probably right. It sounds right to me. All right. We can all agree on that then. Peer reviewed. Yeah. Perfect. <laughs> well, so you guys didn't give me any suggestions for the playlist this week. You didn't ask for any. That is true. Well, you know, I did not ask. That is true. So instead, I'm just going to put you on the spot on air. Do you have any suggestions of similar artists or albums that people could dig into? No. (laughs) Jeremy, rescue it. What do you got? Name one. Well, we've covered uh, at least a couple you could use. Uh, Ima Sumac and Los Indios Tabajares. And you also mentioned Les Baxter as someone you could... It's comparable. Definitely. All right. Some other similar artists I put on the playlist that you can commonly find in those thrift store dollar bins. As we mentioned, Arthur Lyman, who was a early member of this group, has a ton of great Exotica records. Nelson Riddle is another 
founding father of the exotica movement. He had a lot of kind of crappy big band stuff, but then a lot of it that was really interesting when he tried to blend these other different fusion musical elements in there. I also put a track by the Three Sons, who we mentioned on the Vincent Bell episode. Les Paul had some Hawaii-themed records that are pretty cool. Escavel is another space-age music classic that you got to look for. I put a real late-period Baja Marimba Band song on there, them doing the theme from the uh, successful porn film Deep Throat. Yes. And then we have some Latin influences such as Tito Puente, Cal Jader, and early Charlie Parker's work with the Machito Orchestra. Mystic Moods Orchestra on there. Eden Abes, who I mentioned, is one of the weirder early originators of the exotica and hippie movements. Duke Ellington, Jack Costanzo, Nat King Cole, and others. You can find that playlist on Spotify. Just search I'd Buy That Podcast, all one word. Dig into the the sounds of Exotica, as well as playlists from each of our season two episodes. Did you put any Sergio Mendez on there? I have not yet, but I can definitely put that Ooh. on there. There, I have one contribution. <laughs> A plus suggestion, Peter. <laughs> Love it. While I'm talking, I will remind our listeners that you can check us out on patreon.com slash I'd buy that podcast. If you would like to support our efforts here, different tiers that you can pledge. The $1 tier will give you early access to episodes. Well, you'll get them a few days in advance. $5 tier gives you that along with bonus episodes. We're putting out about one a month. We cover 45s on those. They're shorter, about 20 minutes. And there is a few slots left. There are still a few slots left for our $20 tier, which is the vinyl subscription, where you get early access and bonus episodes along with, once a month, Sean Hartman, our wonderful host Sean Hartman, will pack up at least 145 an LP of his choosing and send them your way along with a handwritten note. So please holla at us at patreon.com slash I'd buy that podcast. What else we got for this episode, boys? I got one song to close out on unless either of you have a a final thought before the final track. I just want to say that it's time America leaves the sovereign nation of Hawaii after our over 100-year occupation at this point. We overthrew the kingdom of Hawaii. I don't know if you got to that in your research and occupied it as a plantation territory for many years before making them a state. And it's time we let them be a sovereign nation. Yeah. We also uh, heavily exploited them as a a base of operations in World War II. As, As I said, like a lot of this was from soldiers visiting these South Pacific nations, but that was just because, man, like we were just we were just fucking around so hard in world war two with all these countries that we just like had no right to be a part of anyway. Excellent closing thought, Peter, any closing thoughts? I do find it fascinating that the vehicle for providing an other sense of music is often jazz considering that it's an American music. (laughs) That is interesting. It's gotta be one of the most commonly, fused genres with other things it's it's been a melting pot for a long time 
Think about in the original Star Wars movie, the first music you hear that's supposed to be happening in the world in this, you know, this far off place in the cantina, what style of music are they playing? The band in the jazz. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Some form of it. I think, I think it was uh, called jizz and I'm not making that up. <laughs> Right, because his band was called the Jizz Whalers. <laughs> yeah, that was Max Rebo's band in uh, Return of the Jedi. But yeah, exactly. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but yeah, it's really funny that they that that's often the music to portray this sense of elsewhere is this very specifically American based music. Far out. Well, maybe there'll be a new episode of the next season of The Mandalorian where they have Martin Denny as part of the soundtrack. Could be. Your move, Disney Plus. All right, let's go out on the imposter version of Quiet Village, Side B, Track 7. Thanks for listening. Bye. This has been I'd Buy That for a Dollar. My name is Peter Cook. I'm Jeremy Ruggles. I'm Sean Hartman. (laughs) 